Before we begin, I want to give you a warning. This story contains graphic descriptions of true crimes that involve both murder and the killing of animals. Some descriptions that follow may be disturbing for some listeners, and as such, discretion is advised. A woman named Jean Layton saw a young man who appeared unkempt and had long hair start walking towards her from her own backyard. She watched as he walked up and tried her patio door, which was locked. He then tried the windows, also locked. He then walked back to the patio door, and as Jean stood there on the other side of the glass, staring at the man, he looked at her and didn't appear to have any emotion. He just stared. He then lit a cigarette and walked away. Welcome to the Beach House 34 True Crime Podcast. I'm your host, Christine Wirt. Richard Trenton Chase was born in 1950 in Sacramento, California. Growing up, he had a sister four years younger than he was, but his family life was far from harmonious. His dad was strict and overbearing and constantly fought with his mother. As a young child, Richard liked to set fires, but his behavior escalated quickly. By the tender age of 10, he was already taking the lives of innocent cats. On the flip side of this, other adults described him quite differently. For instance, Richard's former Cub Scout leader described him as being a lanky, but carefree kid who liked sports and girls. He was described as a fine little kid, sincere and interested. By the time he was a young teenager, he was known to attend ball games and school dances, dated often, and even joined the high school cross-country team. While he was in high school, his home life began to hit a downward spiral. His mom had begun accusing his dad of trying to poison her. Additionally, according to his former friends, when Richard reached the later years of high school, he had begun experimenting with LSD, and he became somewhat of a loner. At the time, LSD, also known as acid, was the drug of choice. While LSD was used for a time, especially in the 1950s, by psychiatrists uh, who claimed that it helped their patients, the therapeutic effects were eventually debunked. It was later discovered that the hallucinogenic effects of LSD could produce, quote, profound adverse reactions, such as acute panic reactions, psychotic crises, and flashbacks, especially in users ill-equipped to deal with such trauma. Now, Richard did graduate high school, but barely. By the time he did, he was a completely different person than when he started. Richard's sister, Pamela, even stated later that she became frightened of her brother 
when he was in high school, and she avoided him whenever possible. I never talked to him after he graduated from high school in 1968. If he talked about something, it was always about how sick he was. At one point, she remembered that he was taking baths every two hours, day and night, to improve his imagined poor circulation. And later, he wouldn't take them at all. One incident really seemed to send Richard over the edge when he was 18. He had been with his girlfriend and had experienced momentary impotence. Now, this disturbed him so much that he personally contacted a psychiatrist. Richard learned from this psychiatrist that the root cause of his impotence was repressed anger. Now, as ridiculous as this might sound to us today, you have to remember this was during the mid to late 1970s. Now, the same psychiatrist also thought that Richard was suffering from a major mental illness, but evidently it didn't concern the doctor enough to really to have Richard committed. Richard did eventually move out of his parents' house and trouble just seemed to follow him, especially when he started living with roommates. One time, his roommates had to move out of the shared apartment because Richard's behavior became so unbearable. He had boarded up his own bedroom door, knocked a hole in the wall, and bolted the closet door from the inside. When questioned about this, his prior roommate said, well, that way nobody could sneak up on him. We just thought it was a little weird. One day at a grocery store, Richard saw and approached his old Cub Scout leader. The man who wanted to remain anonymous said he wasn't sure that the person in front of him was who he said he was. He looked like an old man. His face was pale, his eyes were darting back and forth and sunk far back, and he was wearing a heavy coat and scarf and looked like he was going to the Antarctic, although it was a hot day in June. Richard continued to believe that there were various things wrong with him. He was fascinated with the human body and he had charts on his wall showing internal organs of a person. Richard also began to get haircuts that allowed for chunks of his hair to be missing. He believed the air around the cut would create better blood circulation. He was also known to put oranges in a towel and wrap the towel around his head so that the vitamins from the oranges could soak into his skull and help fix his physical problems. He became increasingly preoccupied with any sign that something may be wrong with him. One time, he went to the emergency room looking for the person who had stolen his pulmonary artery. He also complained that the bones were coming out through the back of his head. Now, while he was at the hospital, here he was examined by Dr. Erwin Lyons, a psychiatrist who later diagnosed Richard as being paranoid schizophrenic, but thought that instead, Richard might be suffering from a drug-induced psychosis. In other words, he thought that the reason Richard was acting the way that he was was because he had recently used some kind of psychotic drug. What the doctor didn't realize at the time 
was that his initial diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia was in fact the correct one. Now this diagnosis essentially means that a person will have delusions and hallucinations. They are so bad that it blurs the line between what is real and what isn't, making it difficult for the person to lead a typical life. Since the doctor wasn't sure, he did put Richard in the hospital to be under observation for 72 hours. It was recommended to Richard that he stay for observation, but he wasn't required to, and he could leave whenever he wanted. He was eventually released. As time went on, his hypochondria and his drug abuse overtook him. He didn't take care of himself and began to lose weight rapidly. After he left the hospital, he went to go live with his parents. And while living at home, he began to believe that his mom was poisoning him. His dad, fed up with his behavior, made him move out and got Richard an apartment. While Richard was living in this new apartment alone, he soon began to kill and disembowel rabbits that he either caught or purchased. He would eat their entrails raw. At times, he would put them in a blender along with their blood, liquefy them and drink it, believing this kept his heart from shrinking. In 1973, Richard's parents eventually divorced. A year later, in 1974, Richard sent his mom a last will and testament for himself and told her, quote, there is a mashed set of my bones 6,000 years old in India. His mother, receiving this letter, did nothing. Two years later, in 1976, Richard was hospitalized with blood poisoning after he tried to inject rabbit's blood into his veins. Now, Richard believed that the rabbit had actually ingested battery acid and that that battery acid had then gone into Richard's stomach, which is why he had to go to the hospital. But the fact was, he had literally poisoned himself by injecting the rabbit's blood. It was at this point that a doctor finally stepped in and began conservatorship proceedings. Now, this is a legal procedure where the courts appoint a conservator to authorize the psychiatric treatment of a person. A superior court judge declared Richard incapable of caring for himself and appointed his mom and his dad, even though they were divorced by this time, as his conservators. They were ordered to look after their son for the next year. Because of the rabbit blood incident, Richard was committed, but just to the hospital, mainly because he was suffering from delusions. The doctors tried antipsychotic medications, which didn't work. And the doctors believed that his drug abuse may have caused his psychosis. While he was confined at the hospital, Richard ran away twice. Each time, he ran to his mother's house. After the second time, Richard's mom decided to keep Richard home instead of sending him back to the hospital. The doctor would later say of Richard's mom, quote, she had been having trouble all along, accepting the fact of his illness. She proposed he come in 
on an outpatient basis rather than inpatient and that I treat him with a mild tranquilizer. In both cases, I told her no dice. He needed major tranquilizers and I wasn't going to participate in a program in which I had no faith. After a short amount of time, being at home with his mom, Richard's mother couldn't handle him any longer. And so Richard was placed in the Beverly Manor Sanitarium in Carmichael. Richard only stayed there for about six months. During his time at the sanitarium, he earned the nickname Dracula. Because while in the facility, he talked about killing rabbits and one day he was found with blood all over his face and the bodies of headless birds in his hands. The program director at Beverly Manor said that Richard had been kept in a room by himself after the bird killing incident because the staff felt he was a danger to the other patients, and rightly so. One sanitarium nurse said a lot of staff and patients were scared to death of this guy. They didn't want to be in the same building with him. It was Richard's mom, not the doctors, and we'll get to this, that decided to release Richard out of the sanitarium in October of 1976. As a matter of fact, later in court, several staff members testified that they protested when they learned that he was going to be released. One of the nurses said that they all raised hell about it because he was nowhere ready to be released and this was reported to the administration of Beverly Manor. There was no real change in his physical or any appearance. He wasn't functioning at any different level when he was discharged than when he was admitted. The sanitarium director said that the standard procedure is that a doctor must order a patient's discharge. Now it all gets very vague at this point, but what we do know is that Richard's case was turned over to a patient rights advocate. She wouldn't say anything about Richard and his release because, quote, the issue of confidentiality is such a fine line that I wouldn't want to make a comment. She further stated that she couldn't give the name of Richard's attending physician for the same reason. Later though, we learned during testimony that the doctor who did sign off on his release, Dr. Thomas Buckley, was the same one who had initiated conservatorship in the first place. And later on, we'll get to his testimony. This same nurse that testified about Richard not being ready also said that after he was released, she found his diary that he had kept while at the sanitarium. In the diary, it contained lists of lots of different animals, like rabbits, uh, cats, dogs, along with different names and different descriptions of the consistencies of the blood and how it may have tasted, sweet or thick. After Richard was let out of the sanitarium, his mom went and got Richard an apartment on Watt Avenue. His mother would get his social security disability checks, she would cash them, she would buy him groceries and pay his rent, and then give the rest of the money to Richard, which actually ended up not amounting to very much. His mom chose this apartment complex because it was close to the Chase family home. Now, even though he was still supposed to be 
taking his psychiatric medication, he was never supervised, so it was unknown if he did or not. We do know that his mom started weaning him off of the medications because she felt as if he didn't need them. His parents' conservatorship ended on June 2nd of 1977. So in effect, they were no longer legally responsible for Richard. And according to the law, conservatorships for mental patients expire in 12 months unless a new petition is filed. Why a new petition wasn't filed for Richard is beyond me. At the time, there was no civil provision in California law for committing a person as a potential danger to society for any long-term indefinite period. Now, during the eventual trial of Richard, one doctor stated, quote, the law was built on the premise that most people can be treated quickly and return to a normal or near normal life with support in the community. 10 years ago, and remember, he is speaking in 1978, so he's referring to 1968. So 10 years ago, it was discovered that only 9% of all those held in state hospitals were considered a potential danger to society. His mom testified that uh, one day, in the summer of 1977, and this is shortly after the conservatorship ended, Richard arrived in front of her house, in front of her front door, and stood there for some time uh, without knocking. He was just standing there staring at the door. She then heard a what she called a slapping sound and ran to a window where she saw Richard standing there with a kitten. She said, you could tell it was dead. It hung limp. He put his hand in the blood and then put his hand on his neck like that with the blood. Richard then left a few minutes later. What bothers me about this is that obviously she knows her son is standing there at the front door and he's standing there for some time, but she doesn't even open the door. She doesn't even say anything. She doesn't open a window and say, hey, what are you doing here? All that she does is run to a window when she hears a sound and just watches him. At the time that this incident happened with the kitten, his mom never bothered to report it to anyone. Now, Richard, he wasn't at the Watt Avenue apartment long uh, before he did finally move back in with his mom. But this didn't last long either. Um, her neighbors would talk about noisy disturbances and a moody, sometimes incoherent, Richard lurking about the neighborhood. His mom later testified also that Richard seemed to enjoy tormenting her dog, where he would pinch the dog's paws and the dog would cry out. This dog later disappeared. It reached the point, to no surprise, that his mom eventually couldn't handle him at home. And so what she did is she rented another apartment in the same complex where Richard had previously lived on Watt Avenue. Now, during his second stay in the Watt Avenue apartment, his neighbors had begun to notice Richard and his odd living habits. He was seen carrying long guns between his apartment and his pickup truck. Some residents figured he was an avid hunter. 
Others were disconcerted, and the manager finally asked Richard to wrap the guns up in something before taking them out in public. One neighbor said he was very obliging about covering them up. Around this same time, Richard was allowed to get about seven dogs through the SPCA and newspaper ads, but none of these dogs were ever found in his apartment. Now, up to this point, Richard believed that people were really actually trying to poison him, but his delusions grew to the point that Richard even believed that the food that he was receiving from the grocery store was tainted, so he ate less and less until his weight dropped to around 115 pounds. Now, Richard, it's important to know, was 5'10", so he's 5'10", and he weighs 115 pounds. In August of 1977, Richard's truck was found stuck in some sand on the Pyramid Lake Indian Reservation in Nevada by federal officers. Inside the truck was a pile of men's clothing and some guns, but they also found blood smears inside the truck and a white plastic bucket that contained a liver. As they searched for the owner of this truck, which ended up being Richard, they found him nude and covered in blood. He had killed a calf and then smeared the blood all over his body. Richard believed that this would correct his circulation problems. Tests later showed that the blood of the organs found inside the truck came from animals. The police confiscated his guns and charges against Richard for having these guns were later dropped. Richard was then released the following day. In December of 1977, Richard bought a 22 caliber automatic pistol and some ammunition. Now his family, even though they all gathered for Christmas that year, didn't allow or want Richard there because they could no longer control him. Now keep in mind, it was his mother who had decided to reduce the amount of medications that he was taking. He's by himself at this point in this apartment and although he's provided medication, there's no way that anybody can prove that he's taking the medication. Now, during this Christmas gathering, Richard tried to break into his family home, but was turned away. Richard's disease seemed to get the best of him by the end of December and in January of the next year. On December 27th, a report came in from a woman who said that a shot had been fired into her home. Police investigated and found it to be a 22 caliber slug. On December 29th, just two days later, Ambrose Griffin, 51, an engineer and dad to two sons, was shot and killed by a small caliber bullet as he unloaded groceries from his car in front of his East Area home. Now, both he and his wife had just gotten back from the grocery store his wife had just grabbed a sack of potatoes and began walking inside with them. Her husband followed her with two bags of groceries. But when he returned to the car to get more of the grocery bags, he simply just dropped to the ground. At first, his wife thought it may have been a heart attack. However, she would later learn that it was from someone who had been driving by shooting a gun out the window of a car. 
the shooter would much later, and after other killings, be identified as Richard Chase. On the 11th of January, a woman named Dawn Larson, who was a neighbor of Richard's at the apartment complex, noticed Richard carrying three animals into his apartment. She knew having animals was against the rules, but she never saw those animals again. One time, Richard asked her for a cigarette, and so she gave him one, but he didn't let her walk away until she gave him the entire pack. On the 23rd of January, a woman named Jean Layton saw a young man who appeared unkempt and had long hair start walking towards her from her own backyard. She watched as he walked up and tried her patio door, which was locked. He then tried the windows, also locked. He then walked back to the patio door, and as Jean stood there on the other side of the glass door, staring at the man, he looked at her and didn't appear to have any emotion. He just stared. He then lit a cigarette and walked away. This same day, Robert and Barbara Edwards were bringing in their groceries when they heard a noise inside their house. Whoever was in there heard them come in and began to run to leave. They heard something slam at the back of the house, and then a disheveled young man came around the corner towards them. Robert tried to stop him, but he sprinted past him and got out of the house. After they had called the police and the police came to investigate, they found the house a wreck. It appeared to them that the person was after valuables, but the thief had urinated into a drawer of baby clothing and had defecated on the baby's bed. FBI agent Robert Ressler had asked Richard once how he chose his victims. Richard said that he went down the streets testing doors to find one that was unlocked. If the door was locked, it meant you were not welcome. On January 23rd, the same day that Jean Layton saw a man in her backyard, a woman named Teresa Wallen, who was 22, was found brutally murdered in her home. Earlier that morning, around 10 o'clock, Teresa had gone to a nearby market to cash a check. After she got back, she was in the process of taking out her garbage when she ran into Richard as he tried to get inside her house. Richard shot her twice in the head, and a third bullet went through her hand when she put her hands up in defense. She fell to the ground. He then drug her into a bedroom, went back into the kitchen, retrieved a knife, and grabbed an empty yogurt container out of the trash. Teresa's mother-in-law tried calling her around 1.30 that afternoon, but no one answered. And Teresa wasn't found until around 6 p.m. that evening when her husband got home from work and saw a large puddle of blood just inside the front door. The blood trail continued to the back bedroom where he found his wife crumpled on the floor. She had been sliced open a 12-inch cut vertically down the middle of her torso, and she had been disemboweled. Her spleen and intestines had been pulled out, and her kidneys had also been removed. 
Teresa had also been three months pregnant. Upon making the discovery, her husband ran screaming from his home to a neighbor's house, where he called the police. As the police investigated, they couldn't find any evidence that the house had been robbed, just that Teresa had been murdered. They also found blood in the bathroom, and it was later learned that Richard had smeared her blood, Teresa's blood, all over his face and hands. The yogurt container? This yogurt container also appeared to have blood in it, as if someone had used it as a glass. Four days later, on the 27th of January, another horrific set of murders occurred. Evelyn Maroth, her six-year-old son, Jason, and a family friend, 52-year-old Daniel Meredith, were discovered by a neighbor and her son. Evelyn's son was set to go on a trip to the mountains with the neighbor and their, their son. When he didn't arrive, they decided to stop over to get him. The front door was locked, and so they walked around to the back door and walked inside. Immediately, they saw Daniel Meredith lying on the floor and went and called the police. When the police arrived, they found Daniel had been shot in the head, lying on the floor in the hallway. As they walked down the hall, they found Evelyn on a bed. She too had been cut down her abdomen, her intestines pulled out, just like Teresa's. Her son Jason had been shot twice in the head and laid at the foot of the bed. Shell casings were found scattered throughout the entire house and two kitchen knives were missing and believed to have been used in the crime. To make matters even more disturbing, Evelyn had been taking care of her 22-month-old nephew, but he was nowhere to be found. They discovered this because Evelyn's sister, Karen, arrived and asked about her son. The police did find a bullet hole in the mattress where the child would have been, along with a lot of blood. Daniel's vehicle, a 1972 red station wagon, was stolen and found later abandoned on Marconi Avenue, not far from the home. Again, their house was not ransacked and nothing appeared to have been stolen. They also didn't see any sign of a violent struggle. Now, after the second murder took place, over 65 detectives began investigating the crimes and to search for 22-month-old David. Because the crimes happened within such a small radius of each other, and this is also where the abandoned station wagon had been found, they focused their investigation to just that area within that immediate area and who may have been involved. When they researched who had purchased 22 caliber weapons recently, they discovered that Richard Chase had purchased and registered the same kind of gun that they were looking for. As they were investigating, yet another report had come in within the same vicinity that a dog had been shot and disemboweled. When detectives visited Richard's apartment, number 15 at the Evergreen Apartments on Watt Avenue, he never answered. They tried time and time again with the same result. One evening, around 6.15, they tried again, and again, they received no answer. But this time, they tried a different tactic. After knocking, 
one of the officers pretended to walk away, while the other stayed near the door. After a few moments, the door flew open, and a man carrying a cardboard box came running out almost into the hands of one of the officers. A scuffle ensued, and Richard Chase was arrested. The box, it was later discovered, contained bloody rags and a pink diaper pin. Also found within his home was a green plastic bucket, similar to one that was missing from Mrs. Moroth's home. Richard, when he was arrested, had in his possession a 22 caliber gun in a holster that had been decorated with swastikas, and they also found Meredith's wallet. Now, Richard Chase, he was arraigned on mass murder charges a few days later. He faced five counts of murder, kidnapping, robbery, and assault. Because he was obsessed with blood, he was dubbed by the press as the Vampire of Sacramento. A public defender represented Richard. The judge set February 14th as the date for Richard's next court appearance after she refused to grant the prosecutor's motion for an immediate psychiatric evaluation. This, seriously, this just blows my mind. The prosecutor is asking for an immediate psychiatric evaluation, not the defense attorney, and the judge wouldn't grant it? In the meantime, authorities are still trying to locate the missing 22-month-old David. Now, the baby David, he was eventually found two months later. A church janitor found a box containing a male child's remains. And this gets a little graphic, so I just want to give you a heads up. So if you want to kind of pause for a minute in case there's ears listening. When the police arrived, they recognized the clothing as the baby they were searching for. The baby had been decapitated and the head was under the baby's torso. A hole in the center of the head indicated that the child had been shot. There were other stab wounds to the body, and several ribs of the baby had been broken. Beneath the baby was the key ring to the stolen station wagon. It was discovered that after Richard had been arrested and his apartment had been searched, Investigators found a calendar where Richard had written the word today on the dates that the killings occurred. But they also found 44 other entries with this same word that continued throughout the rest of the year. Another entry said, My name is Rick Chase. I am a 0100 computer and I was sent here in the year 10,000. Yet another entry said, Sadist, Seethe, Dracula. Also within his apartment were animal parts in his refrigerator and a bloody toothbrush. Investigators took away his sofa, a chair, they ripped up his rug, and they sawed a piece out of his front door. It was reported that since his arrest at the Watt Apartments, 21 people have moved out of the 144-unit apartment complex where he used to live. The building owner gave the apartment managers two tickets to Las Vegas so they might get a respite from the ordeal of the past several days. 
Reporters then visited Beatrice Chase, and this is Richard's mom. She barely cracked open her door. And she said, in my mind and heart, I feel he's not guilty. They'll have to prove it first. Richard's dad, a computer analyst at McClellan Air Force Base, was said to be under a doctor's care. His new wife said he's not up to talking with anyone. Questions arose about why Richard was allowed to live among the public when he obviously had some serious issues that hadn't yet been addressed. A medical official anonymously cautioned against the wisdom of hindsight, saying there is no certain way to predict human behavior. And I'm sorry, well, not sorry, but this is a bullshit answer. Considering his background, how he had been found multiple times with either animal parts or blood around him, and even in one case in him, due to him injecting rabbit blood, this was in fact very predictable had someone just done their freaking job. Richard was in an isolation cell in the county jail. After he was arrested, he was interviewed by even more psychiatrists. One of them said, to Richard, he was going to die. He was dying from a disease where he needed blood. The doctors wouldn't give him blood and animal blood wasn't working. So based on that delusion, he was trying to save his own life. The judge did admit the testimony about Richard not being able to control his actions uh, after Ronald Tuchterman objected feverishly about this. Ironically, it was Tuchterman who had originally requested that this particular psychologist interview Richard, hoping to get more information about the then-missing, they hadn't found him yet, the then-missing 22-month-old child. Now, Richard never did talk about the child to the psychiatrist. Now, Richard's attorney, Salome, then asked this same psychiatrist if someone like Richard could commit these offensive offenses in a secretive manner, like planning them or, you know, going behind someone's back. The psychiatrist said that when he was delusional and he saw virtually everyone as his enemy, he wouldn't do things to get caught. So he's not going to behave in a way that will put him in jeopardy. His behavior was goal-directed and he was controlling his behavior from his own psychotic point of view. In addition to the needing of blood, his other delusions were that Martians may have had something to do with the Italians persecuting him, that women were prostitutes, and that he needed blood to correct his imagined physical problems. Richard told the doctor that he had killed only six, not seven dogs, and that he had eaten a dog liver. Richard asked the doctor if he could have an angiogram, and this is an x-ray of your blood vessels after they have been injected with a radioactive dye to, quote, help determine the extent of poisoning of his organs. Richard truly believed that his circulatory problems had improved after he had drunk the blood of various animals. But he said that he was told by people in the underground, and I'm not sure exactly what that means, but the underground, that if he sucked human blood, this would be even more helpful. 
But this one psychiatrist wasn't the only one that interviewed Richard. Another one, trying to get him to talk about the murders, did succeed in getting Richard to tell him some details. When he talked about entering Evelyn Moroff's home, he said that he just started shooting and drank her blood to cure her, his poisoning. He did admit to taking 22-month-old David with him that day, quote, because I needed something to eat. Now this, of course, it was shocking to hear. So the psychiatrist asked him, did you eat the baby? He responded with, no, the police came. I guess I threw it away in a garbage can or something. He was then asked if he drank the baby's blood. He said, no, I don't think so. This was followed up with, why would anyone want to kill the baby? And according to Richard, he said, he, I guess, he was maybe a relation of people who hated Jews. And um, I don't know if they had anything to do with it or not, but they've been promoting their kids and I've been dying and they've prospered. He was also asked why his feelings of anger and frustration would make him shoot people. Quote, I just heard too much about Nazis and everything lately. I just went berserk because I couldn't get along with my mom. I couldn't go over to her house. She wouldn't let me in the house anymore. Since being in jail, Richard has filed a number of letters to the court seeking medical attention for his imagined physical problems, such as a backwards growing stomach and tumors. In another letter, he requested Jewish courthouse guards and protection from hostile elements visiting the courtroom. He was constantly paranoid about being poisoned by food and tried to survive on packaged candy bars. Now, Richard's sanity hearing began, and it began in front of a jury of predominantly young and female jurors who listened to what happened to the victims of Richard Chase. It was their job to determine whether or not Richard was sane while he committed his crimes. While they never saw the photographs, they did hear descriptions of what happened to the victims, and many were noticeably affected. Richard has admitted to court-appointed psychiatrists that he killed six strangers in three separate incidents. He told the psychiatrist that he was frightened because he thought the victims were German. Quote, it happened so fast. I was so sick. They were killing me. They looked like Germans. I was just kind of delirious. His court-appointed attorney, Salome, said that while Richard speaks coherently at times, his actions over the past years have been controlled by a growing delusional thought process, which makes him believe he needs blood to correct his physical ailments. He also believes that he is a Jewish, a Jew being persecuted by Germans and Italians. He is not Jewish. It took this jury only 65 minutes to decide that Richard Chase was and I can't believe I'm about to say this, that he was sane. This meant that he would go to trial. And if you're like me, you are completely dumbfounded at this. What in the world, what in the freaking world made these people believe that Richard was even a little sane? So Richard Chase's trial begins. He was charged with six counts of murder, 
uh, doctors testified about his history of psychotic behavior and his delusions that he needed blood to strengthen a weak heart. During some of this testimony, Richard spit on the floor. Other times, he loudly spoke to his attorney, especially as the doctors reported that Richard's heart and his pulmonary artery were not missing, as he had claimed. On February 8th, Richard's mom is on the stand, and she said that she did not know why she neglected to tell psychiatrists until just a few months ago that Richard had heard voices and that she thought and thought that she, his mom, was controlling his mind. She said that as a child, Richard had not complained of being anemic or needing blood. And this made Richard outburst in the middle of court. And he said, that's not true. I never discussed it until I was 23 years old. I just want to clear the air. His mom was then asked why she never said anything about him hearing voices to the investigators. Her response? Well, I think this is implied from observation of the way he was acting. He acted like he was listening to something and then said, no, no, I'm not going to do it. Shut up. She admitted that this first incident occurred in 1971 or 1972. So this is about three or four years after he is out of high school. On February 14th, psychiatrist after psychiatrist testified for the jury. Dr. Thomas Buckley, now he was the one who had initiated conservatorship proceedings against Richard after Richard had injected himself with rabbit's blood. He at first told the jury that Richard was not psychotic when he was discharged from the Beverly Manor Sanitarium. Now remember, I've talked about the testimony from the workers who said this is ridiculous, he should not be released. Now on the stand, Buckley defined a psychotic as a person who cannot care for himself. He later amended this definition to someone who is out of touch with reality. He further said that Richard was borderline psychotic when he left the sanitarium and that he had a limited ability to function in the outside world. Now, as we know, Richard was discharged at the request of his mom, but remember, a doctor had to sign off on this, and evidently, Buckley did. Buckley also said that the drugs he had prescribed for Richard, quote, approached the maximum recommendation. They included tranquilizers and medicines that were designed to counteract the side effects produced by the tranquilizers. He did agree that if Richard had stopped taking his medication, his mental condition could have deteriorated within a few days. Richard again filed a letter to the court accusing witnesses of a conspiracy to brainwash, poison, follow, threaten, and drive to insanity Richard Trenton Chase. Tuchterman, he said that Richard's killings were carefully planned and motivated by bloodlust. He is requesting the death penalty. Now, before the death penalty can be applied, the law requires that malice and premeditation be proven before a defendant can be convicted. Richard took the stand in his own defense. By this time, his weight had dropped to 107 pounds. He didn't recall much about the murders, but he did say he was sorry. 
Richard's attorney requested second-degree murder, which would mean that Richard would avoid the death penalty. And he did this because he said he was clearly insane and had never been given the proper help. The prosecution argued that he was a sadist and a monster who knew what he was doing and he couldn't be helped. So in May of that year, the jurors returned with a verdict after only four and a half hours that the death penalty should be upheld and that Richard should die in the gas chamber at San Quentin Penitentiary. During his appeal process, Richard said that he was killing to preserve his own life. And he mentioned something called soap dish poisoning. When he was asked what this meant, he said, everyone has a soap dish. If you lift the soap and find that underneath it is dry, you're all right. If it's gooey, you have the poisoning, which turns your blood to powder. The powder then depletes your energy and eats away at your body. While having an interview with the well-known profiler, FBI agent Robert Ressler, after Richard had been sentenced to death row, Richard told the agent that he was Jewish, which he is not, and that Nazis had persecuted him because he had a Star of David on his forehead. He did not. He explained that the Nazis were connected to UFOs, which had telepathically commanded him to kill to replenish his blood. These UFOs followed him around and the FBI should be able to pinpoint them by putting a radar on him. He then pushed a cup towards Ressler that was filled with leftover mac and cheese. He wanted it analyzed for poison. Ressler learned that other inmates taunted Richard and urged him to kill himself. They didn't want to be around him. Ressler, along with the prison mental health professionals, felt that Richard should be transferred to a psychiatric hospital. He was for a short time, but then he returned to San Quentin. And I don't know why. I honestly have no idea why. The day after Christmas in 1980, a guard went to Richard's room and asked if he wanted breakfast. Now, Richard didn't respond, which wasn't strange. You know, Richard wasn't eating because he felt like everything was was poison. And so the guard moved on. Around 11 o'clock that same day, the guard returned and asked Richard if he wanted lunch. Again, Richard didn't respond, but Richard looked different. He was on his stomach, his legs extended off his bunk, and his feet were on the floor. The guard called out to him and he failed to respond. So the guard then went into the cell and pulled Richard off the bed, where it was clear to the guard that Richard was dead. The coroner was called, and in Richard's cell was a note that was four pages long, indicating he would be taking pills. The letter mentioned he'd be taking some pills and called himself by his own name in the letter. Part of this letter said, before Richard takes the pills. Now, each day while he was in prison, Richard would receive a package that contained three types of medication. He had been hoarding these pills and one day took several of them. More than two dozen pills were found on the floor of Richard's cell. A spokesman for the State Department of Corrections said that Richard was given his daily medication dosage, dosages in the packets by the guards on death row, 
but they couldn't confirm if they had watched Richard actually take the pills or not. A year later, relatives of the six victims hired an attorney and claimed that if the sanitarium had not released Richard when they did, and that if his parents had adequately controlled him and warned persons of the danger he represented, six murders would not have occurred. And while this is after the fact, I agree with them. They did not win their case. Beverly Manor Sanitarium officials and the parents of convicted killer Richard Chase are not liable for Chase's actions following his release from the care facility in 1976. Judge Puglia affirmed a Sacramento Superior Court ruling that institutions cannot be held accountable for the conduct of released patients. The other two judges on the panel concurred, and evidently this was a very expedited case. And that is the story of the vampire of Sacramento. Before we end, I have to say this story is heartbreaking. Seriously, in all respects. Not only did several people and animals lose their lives, but it's clear, it's abundantly clear that Richard had a mental condition that no one took seriously enough, especially his mom. Had someone stepped up and gotten Richard the help he needed, or if the help for his condition wasn't available, at least keep him someplace where not only he would be safe from himself, but others would have been safe as well, none of this tragedy would have ever taken place. None of it. Thank you all so much for listening. I appreciate, appreciate you so, 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 so much. The next episode, which might be quite long, actually, uh, is on the Golden State Killer. So make sure you subscribe so you get notified and when they go live and I will talk with you next time. <laughs>